Good morning, Lincoln Avenue. Open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter today. We're actually going to be looking at it three times. What do you think of that, huh? Uh, at least three or so. So, It is uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. One of the, my favorite um, gospel pictures is what I would call it. A gospel thread is what we called it um, during the uh, God Story Project. So uh, we're going to kind of read it, and then we're going to look at it <clears throat> briefly, kind of get the story in our heads, and then we're going to go back and look at it in view of the gospel and in view of its relationship to us and Christ and what God has done for us. Second Samuel chapter 9, first 13 verses. Here we go. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. They called him to David and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amil, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba. Saul's servant and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all my lord the king commands his servant, So will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Father, we rejoice at such a beautiful gospel picture. Father, we are Mephibosheth. You are a king like no other king. Father, we thank you for seeking us, for pursuing us, for loving us, for showing kindness to us again and again, for giving us grace. Lord, help us to rest in that grace today, that it would fill us up, that it would change the way that we live and the way that we treat others. Father, teach us about grace. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we open up here in chapter 9, and I believe this is the first sermon in this series in which David is now the established king of Israel, okay? Uh, so up to this point, you know, when we first uh, started the series, he's a shepherd boy, uh, eighth son of Jesse, kind of a nobody, and God's anointing and hand was upon uh, David, and uh, through lots of trials and tribulations and struggles, that's mainly where we've been with David is uh, in the caves and in the wilderness and being oppressed and being persecuted. And we saw how, how David handled all that. But today, the passage in front of us finds David in the throne room of Israel. He is king, okay? He's, he's, king, he's king. He's a ruling sovereign. Uh, he has subdued his enemies. He has secured the throne. And now we get to see... How does David treat people when he holds all the cards, right? So up to this point, we've seen how did, how did David treat people when they hold all the cards, and he's got no cards, you know? <clears throat> but now David's in power. Now he's reigning and ruling, and so how, <coughs> how does David handle that? Well, <clears throat> we see in verse 1 that David is seeking, he is looking, he is searching for someone of Saul's family that he might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Okay, so what is David, what do we find him doing in the throne room? Well, he is strategizing and thinking about how he can pursue one of Saul's descendants that he might show them kindness. Now, particularly the kindness of God. Notice verse 3, and the king said, is there not someone in the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God? Okay, verse 7, do not fear, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Now, Here's, here, here's the bad deal, okay? The bad deal is that kindness is, is not a great translation, okay? Now, I, I don't know that there's a better one for this particular passage, but the reason is, is because this word in the Hebrew is, is an incredible word, okay? It's the word chesed, okay? Now, many times I don't talk about Hebrew because it's not that important. Today, it's important because you need to know this word, okay? So chesed, okay? Just, just act like you're kind of trying to bring up some phlegm. That's how you start. It's a ha. Okay, it's that's, we don't have any letters like that in English, but they do in Hebrew, okay, and chesed, okay? Now, now the reason I, I would say it's the most important word in the Old Testament, I can't, that's just my opinion, but I would say that because it is used over and over and over again, and mainly for God's covenantal love for his people. In other words, chesed is the word that is used for how God treats his people, okay? All right, and so here we find David, okay, we find David searching the family of, uh, of Saul for someone to show this Chesed too, okay? So you might, you might translate it covenantal love or steadfast love. I think those are great translations. Loyal love. The reason that, 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 that translators translate, translate it kindness here, I believe, is because it has a very practical implication in this passage, right? I mean, a lot of times when we think about love, we think about how do I feel about somebody, which is probably not a great definition anyway. But, but kindness, when we think about kindness, we think about an act, right? Uh, a practical deed, okay? And so, so the way that I would, I would like for you to think about this is David is, is, is seeking someone out to relentlessly pursue to do them good, okay? That's a, I think that's a great kind of um, definition of what this word is, okay? It is, it is mostly God doing this, but at times like this, we see men doing it, okay? But it is to relentlessly pursue someone with the intent to do them good. All right, now, <coughs> who is the target of David's 
kindness or his chesed, his covenantal love? Well, it, it's someone from the house of Saul, okay? Now, now, right there, that should amaze us because if you know anything about your history, whenever a new king would come into power, what did he do to the old king's family? Sword, right? They got the sword. They, they slaughtered them all. Why? Because they were a direct threat to the new king's reign, okay? But David's a king like no other king because David is, is, is going after the family of his predecessor, okay, Saul, the guy who hated him more than anybody hates him in, in, in this world, the guy that, that, that caused more pain and affliction upon David than anybody in the world, okay? Do you have anybody like that in your life? Someone who's, who's caused you more pain, more affliction, more discomfort, more difficulty than anybody else, okay? That's Saul for David, okay? And David is going after his family to find somebody to relentlessly pursue to do them good. Okay, that's who he's seeking after, okay? Uh, He's not seeking after someone who deserves it. He's not seeking after someone who's worthy. No, 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 no. No, the motive behind David's actions is actually Jonathan, okay? Notice there's a key phrase here in verse 1. Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You guys remember Jonathan, right? Uh, That was our second sermon in this series. After David fights Goliath and slays Goliath, he meets Jonathan. And it says that the soul of Jonathan was immediately knit. Remember that? To the soul of David. And they made a covenant with one another. Jonathan's the guy who's the prince. He's royalty and he takes off his royal robes. He takes off his army and he gives it to David. You know, almost a sign of saying, I'm stripping myself of my, of my royalty, and I'm laying it on you, okay? Jonathan's a great picture of Jesus, actually, in the Bible. Jesus, who stripped himself, did he not, of his royalty, of his, 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 his reigning privileges of heaven, and came down to minister to us, to make a covenant of love, to show us kindness, all right? So, so he's doing this for Jonathan's sake, and so he finds somebody. And this guy's name is Mephibosheth, okay? He's the son of Jonathan, so it works well here. He's a man who's crippled in both feet, and he's living in the wilderness, way out in Lodabar. No pasture is what that word means. Way out where there's nothing, no man's land. Gaiman, if it would be Gaiman here, you know. He's just way out in, in no man's land, okay? And, and so, so Mephibosheth gets summoned. Not only does he get summoned, but Zeba goes and gets him, and, and he brings him back, and, and he comes in, and Mephibosheth drops to his face. Why does he drop to his face? Because he doesn't think he's going to have a face in a minute, right? I mean, he expects this is it for me. David immediately, don't fear, don't fear, okay? Implying that you got nothing to fear. I'm going to do you good. And indeed, David does him good. David immediately pulls out his checkbook, you know, however you want to think about this. He gives him all the land of his father, Saul, who's the king. Immediately, Mephibosheth goes from being in the wilderness, being, being a hunted man, a fugitive. Now he's the richest guy in Jerusalem, probably, okay? David gives him all that, and then David brings him to his table and makes him one of his sons, okay? That is the story of 2 Samuel 9. That's the first time, okay? Only two more times, all right? Or a couple more times here, all right? So here we go. We're going to go through it again. We're going to come back and go through it again. Now, this time we're going to walk through the story, and what we're going to be looking for is gospel threads. What's the whole Bible about? The whole Bible's about Jesus, is it not? The whole Bible's about God's redemption plan of Jesus Christ coming to redeem his people for his own, own sake and, and, and making people that will, that will reign with Christ in heavens and earth forever and ever. That's what the Bible's about. And so even when you find in your Old Testament, you're going to find pictures, glimpses, gospel threads of, of Jesus in the Old Testament, okay? And this particular story is a beautiful picture of the gospel. You have a gospel thread here, okay? So let's, let's compare the story of David and Jonathan and Mephibosheth to the story of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, 
and all you little Mephibosheths, okay? That's who you are. You're a bunch of little Mephibosheths, okay? If you're a believer here today, that's who you are, right? Now, <clears throat> why are you that? Well, okay, who's Mephibosheth? Well, Mephibosheth is one who is separated from the king because of the rebellion of him, him and his family, okay? So Mephibosheth is, is separated. He's at odds with the king. He's of the family of Saul. He's an enemy of the king. That's who he is. That's why he's in the wilderness, that, that's why he's fled. That's why he is where he is, okay? And in the same way, who are you today? Who are you? Do you know who you are? Let me tell you who you are. You're a sinner, okay? That's who you are. Romans 3, 23. For all, you're in all, okay? You don't get to be out of all. You're in all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is your death. It's your separation from God. In fact, Ephesians tells us that we need to remember something, okay? You need to remember this. Here, here's what it says. Ephesians 2, 12. Remember, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who you are here today, okay? You're, you're a sinner. No, there is nobody who does not fall in that category. Everybody here in this room, that's who you are. You're a little Mephibosheth. You're separated from the king. You've offended the king of kings. You, 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 you're apart from him, Okay? What else do we know about Mephibosheth? Well, we know that he suffered a terrible fall, okay? If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 4, 2 Samuel chapter 4 and uh, <clears throat> verse 4, it tells the story of how Mephibosheth got hurt, okay? So 2 Samuel 4, 4 says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So there's a story of how he got lame. Okay, He's five years old on the day of the Battle of Gilboa when Saul and Jonathan both get killed. News gets back to where, where the royal family lives. That Saul and Jonathan have both been killed. What do they know? There's going to be a new king. There's going to be a new king. They know that. And so what does this lady do? She flees. She, she knows what happens to the old king's family. She knows what's going to happen to this heir to the throne. And so she picks up this boy and she starts running with him. Somehow they fall and, and the fall is bad, bad enough to cripple this young man for life in both feet. Okay, that's who Mephibosheth is. Now let me ask you, who are you? You're a spiritual cripple. You've had a fall. Did you know you've had a fall? It was a long time ago. It was in the Garden of Eden, okay? It, it, when, when Adam fell, here's what the Bible says. When Adam fell, we all fell with him, okay? We, we fell, and we're damaged goods. Every one of us, damaged goods. We, we, we're broken on the inside. Our wanter is broken. Our desire is broken. We are damaged internally so that we don't even want what we ought to want. We don't love what we ought to love. We, we, don't, we don't do what we ought to do. We're broken spiritually people. That's who we are. We've suffered a terrible fall, and now we've got nothing to offer to God, nothing to bring to the table. All of our righteousness, Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. So what does God do? What does David do with a spiritual cripple who's living in the wilderness? Well, because of David's covenant with Jonathan. We've got we to remember that. Because of David's covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan is the key here, okay? Jonathan is the one that brings about the action of David into Mephibosheth's life, okay? Because of that covenant, David goes after Mephibosheth. David pursues him. David is, is relentless in bringing and initiating Mephibosheth to come to himself. Now, let me tell you who we are. 
We're, we're little Mephibosheths who are spiritually damaged. We're broken in our sin. We're separated from the Father. But yet God the Father, because of Jesus, because of Jesus. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the one who lived for us, who died for us, who, who's brought about this covenant relationship in which God the Father now comes after us to bring us to himself. Isn't it marvelous that David initiates the grace being given to Mephibosheth, not just to invite him, but to actually bring him? You, you, know, how, you know how we might, I mean, this, this would be plenty, wouldn't it? For David to send a letter to Mephibosheth's house in Lodabar and say, Hey, Mephibosheth, I just want you to know, no hard feelings. If you're ever in Jerusalem, come see me. I mean, that'd be great, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd be an act of grace. Or maybe he goes one step further and he sends a new wheelchair. And he says, Hey, Mephibosheth, I know the the journey's difficult. You may have a hard time walking with your crutches, so here's a wheelchair. You know, come on anytime you want. Or maybe he goes even further and sends him a bus ticket. Today, Mephibosheth, if you take the red line, you know, and get on early in the morning, you, you can get to Jerusalem by, by late in the day. Or may, maybe, he, maybe, maybe he sends a taxi even. I mean, that would be great. No, no, no. David goes beyond all of that. You know what David does? He takes Ziba, his servant, and he says, I want you to go get that guy. I want you to go get him. I want you to bring him. I want you to go get him, and I want you to bring him to me. That's what David does. What a beautiful picture of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You are Mephibosheth, okay? You're spiritually damaged. You're broken. You're living apart from God in your sins. And God, in His grace, in His chesed, His covenantal love, has come after you. And He's not just given you an invitation, because not one of you would have come. I would not have come. He's not just said, hey, stop by. Hey, no hard feelings. Hey, if you can make it. No, no, no. He sent the Spirit of God to convict us, to draw us, to open our eyes, and to bring us to himself. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's what the Spirit of God has done for you. He did. He's done what Ziba did for Mephibosheth. He's gone and got him and brought him to David. And is not God's character magnificent? Let's pause right here, okay? Pause right here and just, I want you to see the character of God. David is imaging this out for us. He says in, in, in verse 7, or in verse 3, I'm going to show you the kindness of God, the chesed, the covenantal, loyal love of God. I'm going to show you that. And he does that through this beautiful picture of coming after Mephibosheth and bringing him to himself. Man, I, I'm telling you, God seeking after sinners is a phenomenal thing that I don't know that our minds can get, get, get around. I mean, think about Paul. Okay, so you got the Apostle Paul. It used to be Saul, Paul, okay? So, so who is Paul? Paul's a jerk. Have you ever noticed that in the Scriptures? I mean, this guy is mean-spirited. What we find him doing initially is what? He's got letters, and he's going town to town arresting men, women, and children. And throwing them in prison because of the gospel. This is the guy who holds the coats of the guys who throw rocks at Stephen until they kill him. Okay? This is not a nice guy. He's self-righteous. Philippians chapter 3, when he's recounting his own life, he says, man, this is what I used to think of myself. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was blameless in the law. I, was, I looked at everybody and thumbed my nose down. That's who Paul is. He's, he's Mephibosheth. He's an enemy of God. He's a rebel against the king. He's living apart from God. He doesn't even know it. And what does God do for Paul? God meets him on the Damascus Road, knocks him off his donkey, blinds him and says, buddy, you're a chosen instrument of mine and I'm bringing you with me. Okay? That's what God does in the gospel. That's what he does for us. I mean, who does that? 
Who does that? Who, who chases down dirty, rotten scoundrels with the intent of dumping riches into their life forever? Who does that? Only God. Only God is rich in mercy and full of love in that way. We don't do anything to endear ourselves to God. We don't do anything to earn his favor. We don't do anything to leverage his kindness. It's all coming from God. And the key is that God is pouring out his goodness upon us for the sake of another, for the sake of Jesus. Jesus is Jonathan. Jonathan is Jesus. The one who, who sets up this covenantal love. Jesus is the one who is a faithful son. Jesus was the one who lived a righteous life. Jesus is the one who laid down his kingly robes and laid them down for us that we might have a relationship with the Father. And that's what Jonathan did for, for Mephibosheth. He's the one who was a faithful friend, who was a covenantal friend, who laid down his robes uh, in order that he might minister to David. And now through that, David is bringing Mephibosheth to himself. And what's David do when he gets him there? <coughs> well, <coughs> he lavishes his riches and honor and grace upon Mephibosheth. If you'll notice, David restores all the land of Saul to Mephibosheth. And then gives Mephibosheth the greatest honor of all, sitting at his table as one of his sons. I'm telling you guys, I mean, those two things are marvelous, Okay. David, first of all, gives this guy an inheritance, okay? You know what the Bible says about you? The Bible says that when you come to Christ, God lavishes his grace upon you. He gives you every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 1. He puts his righteousness into your account. He puts his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you. He gives you power and help and peace and joy inexpressible. And then, then he adopts you as his son, I mean, we have an inheritance in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 4 tells us that we have an inheritance in the heavenlies that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for, one, kept for us for that time. But best of all, David tells Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at my table, buddy. Look at this. Look at verse 7. Verse 17, he says this several times. And David said to him, don't fear, for I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I'll restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table Always. You should eat at my table always. And then in verse 11, at the end of it, it says, And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And then again in verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Why does he tell us that three times? You know why? Because that's phenomenal. Who does that? What king picks out his enemy and says, go get the guy, go get the cripple, go get the rebel, bring him in here. I'm going to write him a fat check and give him all the riches of his grandfather, and then I'm going to pull out a chair at my table, and buddy, you're going to be one of my sons forever. Who does that? Only God does that. What a marvelous picture of grace. What a marvelous picture of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus in bringing us to himself and giving us the present riches of forgiveness and righteousness and giving us the future riches of transformation and resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. And then, the biggest of all, God himself saying, Jason, when you come to me in Christ, you are my son. 
Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, an heir through God. That's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. John is so blown away by that that he says in 1 John 3, 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we might become the children of God. I remember when I heard Chuck Swindoll preach on this literally probably 20 years ago. Can you imagine hearing a sermon 20 years ago? If I pause for 10 seconds, you guys have already forgot what I'm preaching on, isn't it? I mean, I mean, it's... But I can remember a sermon 20 years ago. Chuck Swindoll, and I don't remember the whole thing, but I remember him describing this scene just in an imaginative, storytelling way. And I remember him, him describing this, this throne room and this table, David's table. And in comes Tamar, beautiful. And in comes Absalom. The Bible says there's nobody as handsome and fit and, 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 and just upstanding as, as Absalom in the whole kingdom. Then here comes Amnon and, and then David's guys, Joab. Man, talk about a warrior, the general. Here comes Joab, Abishai, one of the mighty men. Guys that kill 20 men by themselves single-handed. These guys are around David's table and then all of a sudden the door opens. Dragging this crutch. Here comes the cripple. And David says, Joab, move over. Absalom, get out, get out of the way. Pull the chair at the table for you. You would be God's son. I'm not making that up. Did we not just read that in Galatians? That you might become children of God's sons. It's grace. You understand that? It's grace. This is the only way people come into the kingdom. This is it. It's the only way. Only by grace. Only by by God initiating a relationship where he dumps his riches upon the undeserving. That's the only way it happened. Listen, if you came here today... And, and, and your story is, you've always been a good person. You've always been a good person. You've always done good deeds. You've always been righteous. And so God's going to let you in because you're a good person. You're not a son. You're a rebel. You're living in Lodabar. Because that's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is you're, you're separated from the king. You're a rebel from the king. You've disobeyed and dishonored God from your birth. And you're a spiritual cripple. And if you're a believer here today, God has come after you and rescued you and brought you into his riches and set you at his table. You have been given grace. We struggle with this in America. We we struggle with this covenantal love. That's probably why we don't have a word for it. We don't have a word that matches what this is. We don't have a word like chesed. Because because we struggle with this covenantal love, this loyal love to be for somebody forever, to chase them down, to, 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 to dump, dump grace into their life. We don't know what that is. 
We, we struggle with covenantal love. We struggle with steadfast love. We know what fast love is. We got that. We got songs about that, right? You know, you fall, you, you're in love at lunch and you're out of love at supper. You know, I mean, we, man, we, our, 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 we know about that. We know about fickle love, right? We know about I'll, I'll love you forever. I'll always be there. I'll take care of you forever until you annoy me. Then I'm out. You know, we, we know about falling in love. That, that's one of the expressions our culture loves to use because that's the way we think about it. I was walking along and boom, I fell into it. You know, I saw her and I fell into love. And, and you know, three days later, I fell out of it, you know. I mean, just bam, bam. That's the way we think of it. Let me tell you, that is not the love of the Bible. That's not what God has for you. God has, yes, he has loyal, steadfast love. Tim Keller compares what most Americans have to a consumer relationship and not a covenantal relationship. You know, you know the difference, right? A consumer relationship is as long as you meet my needs and I'll come, I'll come by at your place. But the moment you stop, the moment it's bad, the moment it's wrong, then I'm out and I'm somewhere else. And here's what he says. In a consumer relationship, you sacrifice the relationship to meet your needs. In other words, if your needs aren't met, there goes the relationship. But in a covenant relationship, you sacrifice your needs to sustain the relationship. That's what we have in Christ. So here's the truth. If you're a believer here today, if you're a Christian, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you only came one way. There's only one way. And that one way was your Mephibosheth. You're, you're a spiritual cripple living in rebellion and sin against God. And God, because of his love and great mercy, has come after you with the gospel for Jesus' sake. Because of Jesus' life and his death and his work on the cross. And God has brought, brought you unto himself and showered his riches upon you and made you his son. That's the only way you came. So, I want to talk to believers this morning about what should be the implications of us being shown this kind of love, okay? That ought to change you. It ought to change you, okay? If, if, if you've been shown this kind of grace, if you've been shown this kind of love, if you're Mephibosheth and, and you've been brought to the table of the king, which if you're a believer, you have, okay, if that's true of you, what should be the implications? Number one, no more boasting. Okay? And by no more boasting, I'm, I'm just saying, in general, your whole look at the world changes okay, about what you deserve and what you've got. All right? that, that, that's what I mean by that. Notice how Mephibosheth comes to David. What is your servant? This is verse 8. What is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog like me? How, how should be our response to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus? In Ephesians chapter 2, which is basically, interestingly enough, Ephesians 2 is the story of Mephibosheth, okay? I, I know you're not going to find his name there or anything, but, but it's, it's our story. It's gospel story. And let, let, me, let me just show you that. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And once you, you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, uh, that now works in the sons of disobedience, to whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. In other words, you're separate from God. You're dead. That's what he says. You're dead. And then verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches. He piles his riches on us. Story of Mephibosheth. It's the story of the gospel. Verse 8, 
Here's his assessment. Here's his summary. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How do you know if you're a boaster? Well, I think the best way is I want you to think about a couple questions, okay? Think about these. Reflect on, on how do you react when you feel you've been mistreated? How, how do you react when you don't immediately get what you pray for? How do you react when you have seasons of difficulty in your life? Now, here's, here's the truth. If, if, you immediately, if you immediately go to, I'm mad because I deserve better. If immediately you, you, you get... You get miffed at God. If immediately you, you start kicking and stomping, and if, if immediately you start throwing a fit, if immediately you start pulling away from God, if immediately you start pulling away from your small group, pulling away from Sunday school, pulling away from church, pulling away from Bible, because you feel like you've been done wrong, like God's let you down, you don't get it. That no man may boast. You know why we can't boast? Because what do you deserve? What does Mephibosheth deserve? What does he deserve? What do you deserve, Christian? Hell. That's what you deserve. Nothing but that. That's what you earned. Do you want, you want to get what you, what you earned? You want to get what you worked for? You, you, do you want what, what you earned, what you labored for? Do you want your wages for your good deeds? Well, let me tell you what they are. They're hell. That's what you get. But oh, in Christ, you've not got that. You've got the riches of Christ and sonship. Now, how should we live in response to grace? How should Mephibosheth live from, from now on? Okay, So he's at the king's table. How should he live? How, how, what should be his, his, his posture? Okay, What do you think? Let's say month down the line, he's been eating at the king's table, maybe two months, maybe three months, maybe six months goes by. And he comes to the table one day, supper time supposed to be six, you know. Something's happened, though, and the cooks are a little bit late, and, and maybe there's a battle going on, or something's got kind of the pastel in an uproar, and here comes Mephibosheth dragging him, crippled self up to the table. He gets in there, pulls up. He's there at 5.59. He likes to eat. He's like me, you know. 5.59, he looks at his watch. Six o'clock, no food on the table. 6.01, no food. 6.04. Pretty soon he gets his crutch up on the table and he starts banging it. Where's my food? How dare you? How dare you not bring me my food? Pretty soon, 610, he starts yelling at David. What is this junk? Y'all cool with that? Wouldn't think so. Do you do that, though? You're Mephibosheth. God's brought you out of the wilderness, drawn you to himself, forgive your sins, taken away your transgressions, given you his riches, and made you a son that no man may boast. I don't think you understand grace if you walk through life believing people owe you stuff, if you walk through life always miffed because you got treated in this way or that way, I don't think you understand grace if, if, if you feel that, you know, 
You got less attention than you deserved or less blessing than you deserved, less honor than you deserved. Man, I, I just I don't think you get grace. Man, how did Paul think of himself? Remember that, 1 Timothy 1.15? Remember how he talked about himself? He said, I'm, I'm the what? I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. Now, now, did he actually calculate that out, you think? You think he looked at everybody else's sins and counted them and counted his own and said, yeah, I got two more than the, the worst guy, so I'm the worst. You, you, know, you know what I think about Paul? I, I think he understood this. He understood grace. I think he understood, I'm a famous chef. Man, I don't deserve God's favor. I don't deserve God's goodness. I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve His riches. Man, I'm just living. I'm living in this overflow of God's goodness in my life. Number one, you won't boast. Number two, you'll live with a fullness. You'll live with a fullness. You'll live with this gratitude of all that God has done for you in Christ, and Jesus will be enough for you. Let, let me tell you how the story of Mephibosheth goes on, okay? We don't have time to read all this, but let me just tell you what happens. All right, so Mephibosheth's in the castle. He's living as one of the king's sons. He's beloved by David, and then things go bad for David. David, because of his, his own sin with Bathsheba, his family starts to fall apart, and his own son, Absalom, t- takes a run at the, at the throne. He tries to kill his dad. He, he, he gets a coup, and they try to overtake. And David, at one point, has to actually flee Jerusalem. Okay, the king's got to flee because Absalom's coming in with the army, and they're not in a position where they can defend it. And so David, in a very low part in his life, has to flee. And at that point, Ziba. Money and riches do funny things to people. You know, Ziba had it all because Saul and Jonathan were dead before Mephibosheth. And he did what David said, but... You can tell now he wasn't real happy about that. So Ziba meets David in the wilderness. He's got a plan here. He meets David and he comes with, uh, verse 1 says, a couple donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread and 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you, why have you brought these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who are faint in heart in the wilderness. Man, isn't that a great thing? Isn't he ministering to the king? That's wonderful. But notice the king's next question, verse 3. And the king said, And where's your master's son? Where, where's Mephibosheth? Ziba lies. Ziba says, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, he didn't say this. He said, Today the house of Israel will give back the kingdom of my father. Now what's true was Ziba tried to go. He tried to flee, but he didn't have anybody help him. Ziba left him. Absalom and his troops are defeated in the battle. And David is coming back into Jerusalem as the conquering king, coming back to take the throne. And here stands Mephibosheth in the outskirts of town. Verse 24 of chapter 19. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He'd neither taken care of his feet or trimmed his beard or washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Mephibosheth didn't shave. He didn't shower. He didn't change clothes. He just mourned for the king. He didn't take care of his feet. His feet evidently need a lot of care. Probably no circulation. Probably like diabetes, sores. He didn't take care of them. He didn't care. What did he care about? All he cared about was the king. David sees that. David says, you know what? I'm just going to divide the land between you and Ziba. And here's what, here's what Mephibosheth says, verse 30. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all. Let him have it all, king. I don't care about the land. Let him have it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. 
know what we see there? People of grace, we just want Jesus. We're not the kind of people that say, I want the gifts of God, but I don't care that much about God. There are a lot of those folks, aren't there? Hey, as long as the gifts are rolling in, me and God are good, but when the gifts stop, then I'm out. No, not Mephibosheth. He said, I don't care about the land. I, I, just, I just want to be with the king. Number three, how should we respond? People who have received grace are people who give grace. All right, the rubber's really going to meet the road here, okay? Are you ready for this? People, people who receive grace are people who give grace. Now, I, I know some of you are going to push back. I know you are, and you're going to push back probably to your small group leader tonight. And so let me just say something that maybe we'll, we'll clarify. Is there a place for justice? Absolutely, absolutely, you know. Should you, should you always give your kids grace, you know? They don't clean their room when they're supposed to clean it. You know, should you say, that's okay, you know? Well, maybe sometimes, but, but should you be just? Yes, because God is a God of justice when it's for their good, okay? So there's definitely a place of justice when it's for the good of everyone, okay? Absolutely, but here's the deal, folks. We who are in Christ ought to be people of grace, okay? If you can't be gracious, I don't know that you've received grace. That's a big problem. I mean, it really is. If you've lived your life as a Christian and you don't lavish kindness on people, you don't lavish forgiveness. Notice I use the word lavish. Why? Because it's a great word. It's a biblical word. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. I, I like the word because lavish means you're given too much. You know, you're extravagant with it. Man, is there ever a time where you're that way with grace? You're that way with people. Man, you, 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 people are critical of you and you come back with grace. You come back with goodness. You come back with kindness. Man, isn't that, isn't that who we are? Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable about God forgiving us and showing his grace and pouring his mercy out on us. And here's the question at the end. And should not you who have received mercy, should not, and should not you have, have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? God says, man, I, I, I loaded you up with mercy. Shouldn't you have had mercy? I loaded you up with grace. Shouldn't you have given grace? Matthew 5, 44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we all say what? Why? Why would we do that? Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his son, big S-U-N, ball of burning gas in the sky. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Shouldn't you be like your father? Ephesians 4.32, shouldn't, shouldn't you show kindness and be tenderhearted and gracious as God in Christ has been to you? I mean, there's that refrain all through the Bible. There's a refrain of God showed mercy. Can't you show mercy? God showed grace. Can't you show grace? God's been kind. Can't you be kind? And, and, and here's, here's the thing that drives me crazy, okay? It, can we even say we've received grace if we're unable to show it? Man, if, if you live your life in this strict economy of giving only what you think other people deserve, 
Man, have you received the grace of God? If you live your life saying, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, but I'll only scratch it for as long as you scratch mine. You know, you were two minutes and three seconds and got tired. That's all you're getting, buddy. Okay, can, can, if you live your life that way, if you live your life saying, I, you, know, you bought my lunch, I'll buy yours at an equivalent or lesser restaurant. You know, if you live your life saying, if you fail me, I owe you nothing but spite. If you're unjust with me, then payback is coming. If you're cruel with me, then cruelty is all you should expect. If you're indifferent to me, then I owe you nothing. If you just do your duty, then don't expect praise from me because it's your duty. Is that the way Mephibosheth lives? Tit for tat, dollar for dollar, even Stephen. I mean, I'm sad to say, some Christians tell me that. If you're a believer, that's not the way you've been treated. That's not your experience. You've been a believer 10 years? That wasn't your experience 10 years ago. Not day one, not day two, not day three, not day four, not day five, not day six, not day 365, not year two, not year three, not year four. That's never what you've got from God. Not one day in your life have you got what you deserve. Not one day. I mean, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Grace, grace, God's pouring it out. And wouldn't it be phenomenally weird if not just a little bit leaked out? <laughs> I mean, surely a little bit. Friends, we got to be people of grace. We got to be people of grace. God's poured in. We pour out. Man, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. Man, maybe you're here today and and just as, as we close, and Bonnie's going to come up, and we're going to sing. But I'm just wondering, man, if you're here today, and, and again, your whole picture of Christianity has been, you've got to be a good person, got to do good things. That's just not it. That's not it at all. The picture of Christianity is, you're broken. I'm broken. We may be different in our brokenness. You may have these tendencies, and I may have these. You may have these sins. I may have these. But we're all broken. We're Mephibosheth. We're rebels. We're living in low to bar. We're spiritual cripples. And God in Christ has come after us. And your job is not to deserve or to earn it, because you can't. Your job is to look to the king and trust him. Your job is to look to the king and love him. Your job is to be what Mephibosheth was. I don't care about any of the land. I don't care about the comforts. I just want the king. That's a guy of grace. Father, help us today to be people of grace. Lord, you have showered immeasurably over and over again. Loving kindness and steadfast love and grace. Father, we've experienced that day after day. And Lord, we stand here today saying thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for coming after us. Thank you for, for pursuing us. Thank you for Jesus who makes the way for us. And God, I pray that you would help us to live in humility. God, help us to live in, in graciousness toward others. 
Lord, I pray that our lives at Lincoln Avenue would be a picture of what we've received, that we would live that out with our spouse, that we would live that out with our children, we'd live that out with our friends, we'd live that out with our small group, with our community. God, make us people of grace. In Jesus' name.